Blackwater, The Wagner Group, Executive Outcomes, The Flying Tigers, The Swiss Guard, The White Company, The Knights Templar, The Varangian Guard, Clerkus of Sparta, Pythagoras the Spartan, Mentor of Rhodes, Socrates of Achaea. The list is endless. Mercenaries, Guns for Hire, Soldiers of Fortune, Private Military Companies, Private Security Contractors, Dirty Deeds, <laughs> Not So Dirt Cheap. History is replete with privatized militaries. Call them what you want. They have been around for a very long time, and they are very likely not going away anytime soon. So you better get used to it, grow up, and accept it, or move to another planet. Because these days, in this world, folks, money trumps everything. And like it or not, wars are good, very good, for business. And pandemics, as if the only pandemic being hyped is an actual thing. Folks, epidemics, and pandemics have been around for as long as mankind. The only thing hurting anyone is the pandemic of the ignorant, the gullible, and the blindly obedient. Furthermore, history tells us that more people are enslaved and killed by such means as greed, corruption, oppression, and tyranny than by any other means. Money, profits, and propaganda. Call it psychological operations or call it psychological conditioning. You are being gaslit. So choose the red pill. Remove your blinders, all of them, and take a good sensory inventory of what you're being told and shown to believe. Because here we go. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Oconus, the Contractor's Life. Talking from the relatively insulated and bucolic rural foothills of northwestern Washington State. I'm your host, Scott Dresser. Life as a private security contractor in a hostile or a war-torn zone, or, as some call it, a non-permissive environment. Well, it is a mixed bag of blessings. Some good, some not so good. All in all, though, a private security contract is much the same as life. It is what you make it. The MENA region, or the Middle East, North Africa region. Lands of enchantment, lands of mystery, lands of the old ones, and the ancient ones. Myths, legends, folklore, maybe. If you believe what you read in the ancient and the holy texts, then you know that it all centered around what we refer to as the MENA region. That's right, the Mediterranean. And you probably also know that to every legend or myth, there is a base of at least some truth. Well then, with that said, and without further delay, let's get back on track. So, picking up more or less where I left off in the previous episode, 
there in the Jalalabad region, uh, on the ground, private security, and uh, quick correction. Uh, I think in the previous episode, I think I've referenced it incorrectly a couple times. I mentioned 240 Bravo, and indeed we did use 240 Bravos throughout the theaters that I worked. But uh, more and more, particularly as we got later in the years, uh, those were replaced by the 240 Golf. Okay, uh, so as I recollect, we may have had one or more Bravos, but uh, I think all the 240s at that time. There in the JBAD region, at least the ones that I was around, were all the Golf model of the uh, 240, or the Golf version, I should say, <laughs> the model. <laughs> anyway, so um, so those of you that are asking, probably, uh, what's the difference between the Bravo and the Golf? Well, tactically speaking, um, I'm not an armorer, and certainly not a machine gun armorer. And so I'm really not, even though I've operated on them and shot them, um, you know, did my share of breaking them down and cleaning them, fixing or clearing, you know, misfeeds and jams and that sort of thing. Uh, the, the, the actual difference between the two versions, again, uh, you can probably look up. Uh, there's, I'm sure there's some authoritative reference material out there somewhere that you can find authoritative reference guides as to the actual differences between the two versions of the 240 the bravo and the golf um and there's but as i recollect the 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 major difference was uh that there were supposed to be reduced fouling or or misfeeds or jams or that sort of thing but uh from the guy on the ground aside from that um it was the barrel the barrel was a lot easier to and quicker to detach and attach uh, a new or fresh barrel, if you will. And we had, as I recollect, on the ground in those towers where we had those mounted, um, and some of them were freely mounted. In other words, you could pick it up and move it and reposition it if it need to be. Um, so that, uh, because if you have to endure sustained fire, the barrels heat up pretty quickly. So for those of you out there who don't quite understand it, you've got this brass ball, well, projectile, traveling down the barrel in a cylindrical tube, and it's, and it's rifled, so that means it's spinning, but it's being ejected at, at super high velocities, or at least high velocities. So we're talking thousands of feet per second. Okay, so measure the barrel and, and do some math and you figure out how pretty quickly it gets through there. And I don't recollect the sustained cyclical rate for the 240 Bravo Golf, uh, but it's more than the two than the uh, say the M60 that that some of the older folks grew up with and is still used out there. Um, and I'm going to just guess that it's somewhere in the 800 rounds per second range as i recollect 800 to 900 rounds something like that the cyclical rate uh, and most of the time uh, you're not when we say sustained fire we're not saying we're pulling the trigger and keeping it depressed and lobbing all rounds down range uh, that barrel is going to heat up real quick because you got the friction so that's the, the heat on the barrel, the friction, it can cause problems, uh, warping and, and, and uh, uh, 
uh, mis you know deforming and, and that sort of thing so eventually you're going to have problems with the round it may not get through the barrel so you can see the barrel you can actually see it more so at night especially at night actually uh when it heats up and it starts to glow um <clears throat> same thing on the m60 you can see it start to glow and you if it gets hot enough you'll actually see it it starts to turn kind of a red kind of like you know when you put the fire poker in your campfire or uh there in the fireplace it heats up um, and it can heat up pretty quick so you learn and if you're doing more than just fam fire or familiarization fire with that weapon um, you learn to do what we call burst fire so three to five rounds sometimes you'll hear seven or ten and, and you know once in a while you know um, and you see it in the movies and sometimes it's not completely inaccurate where there might be sustained fire 20 30 50 60 rounds there's a lot of a lot of people or a lot of stuff out there and you know the dude starts to get freaked out because he's feeling overwhelmed he wants to make sure he gets them all and so you can't maybe even hundreds of rounds um, if you've got a, a long enough belt feeding in there um, so and you know and by belt I mean you know so the ammunition for those of you that, that don't know it, it's all belt fed um, which means that it, and the belt can vary in length I think the shortest I've ever heard or seen is a hundred rounds uh, but they're usually two or three hundred rounds in a belt and they're you know it's kind of like you lay it down you roll it out I don't know 6 12 18 24 inches <coughs> loop it back go the other direction back and forth back and forth back and forth but that's so it's belt fed and uh so sustained rate of fire uh you know per second uh, you're probably talking two or three two or three rounds per second roughly uh but again so you're trained if you're going to use it uh you you're, you're shown and you practice it so you can do three to five round bursts and that's your typical standard okay now it, again it can exceed that uh, in certain firefight situations in fact, you can, uh, not only with the 240, um, you could probably do it with the M60 too. I'm trying to remember if we did it with the M60. I think we did. But uh, we also did it with the M249. So you can, where I'm going, you can do single shot rounds with those uh, in, in auto fire mode. You can, I kid you not. You just got to be shown how to do it. And then you just got to relax and just focus. And, and you can do it. You can literally on full burst mode you can same thing with the ar-15 platform so it's the finem 16 you can have it on full auto cyclical mode and you can be shown and if you practice it you can ex eject one round at a time if need be okay but the typical so it's three to five round bursts were rep but anyway so that was the thing the barrel was the biggest thing uh that i remember from that and we always had uh, as I recollect, in those towers, we had two barrels. The the barrel that was attached to the machine gun, so we mount up, we're on it, and then we got this secondary or the other barrel, um, usually wrapped up. I forget the fabric, but we had it in a fabric, and it, and it was within reach uh, if we needed it. And it was just basically a quick, uh, you know, forward or I don't know if we pushed forward or back, and then a twisting motion, and out it came. And then you put the other one back in, let that one cool down while the other one's being used. It heats up. Um, and usually, ideally, somebody's there to, to notify you, hey, time to change that barrel. So you stop. You quickly remove it. Put, 
the other one's ready to go because the guy next to you gives it to you or he puts it in there for you and bam you're back up and running so uh that's a huge huge performance increase and a big deal when you find yourself in a firefight situation because those machine guns if you've never heard the 240 or the m60 the 240 is even a little bit more intimidating it just it just sound it sounds different and but you're laying down that fire i mean it's uh basically it's a a suppressive fire and now it can be used it can be used uh for precision you know suppress a fire if need be but the but the the intention between the behind the machine gun ideally regardless of the caliber is suppressive fire uh because i guarantee if you're in that area and you hear that especially if you can see um uh where it's coming from because you you see the the flash from the bullets uh you're going to get down you're going to get behind cover um and you're probably not going to be shooting back um if so it's going to be sporadic but that that that, folks, was uh, the correction I needed to make was the 240 Golf was, I think, was actually the version of the, the 240 we were using in, in most, maybe all the towers um, from that point on. Uh, certainly somewhere around 11, 12, 2012. Now, in other theaters, again, it just depended on the contract, where you were, the environment, one thing or another, because you might have the 249 mounted, <clears throat> you might have the M60 mounted, you might have the 240 mounted. And still in other areas, in some towers, we had the, we, uh, it, so again, depending on the environment we were in and what country and contract and whoever the end client was, uh, you might even see the PK or more prevalently the PKM, the Russian version, which fired the 762 uh, by, I want to say 55 or 56 or 62, whatever it was. It was a, it was a uh, same caliber round as the ak-47 762 but the shell casing was was longer uh uh, probably a third to half again as long which means a lot more power a lot more oomph it had a higher trajectory um it came out faster and obviously exited the barrel quicker but it was a much higher um traveling projectile so you would see those pkm sometimes in towers as well um Again, it just depended on where you were. In terms of, you know, did we see guys with sniper rifles? Well, not, not, not really. Not in the towers per se. Uh, there were, but they were almost always the uh, military guys that were the snipers. And you know, as you might suspect, you don't really see the sniper unless he just happens to be there on the base or the camp, walking around with everybody else shooting the shit. Uh, but more. That term gets tossed about a lot, um, and there is a huge difference between a designated marksman and a sniper, or a marksman and a sniper, uh, whether it's a scout sniper or what have you. Okay, huge difference in terms of length of schooling and courses and instruction and training. And now that doesn't mean, because there were, uh, that a designated marksman is not formally also a sniper or scout sniper because uh, they were out there um, and sometimes you meet those guys and sometimes they were on on the same team or, or work for the same company but a designated marksman was usually typically what we saw in the towers um, and and does that mean the designated marksman wasn't good oh yeah they were good I mean they they had that precision down um you know relatively long range they were you know we're talking 
400, 600 meters usually, typically, sometimes closer, two or 100 meters. But the, they were using, typically, uh, they were using an AR-15 platform uh, that had the accoutrements that they needed to zero in and zoom in and do whatever they needed to do to hit the target spot on every time. Uh, were there other platforms used? Yeah, again, it just depended on where you were, the project, and the intensity or the risk threat uh, factor in that environment. And so it's asked, and I think I've commented about this before, so, you know, what other, I mean, if we're on the ground, whether you're in the tower as a designated marksman, or uh, you're up there with your just M4 with iron sights, or you're out there walking around on the ground or driving around, what other kinds of weapons do you normally carry with you? Well, typically, and again, it just depended. There was a lot of variables. But typically, it would be the M4-style uh, AR-15 that was out there that was being used. Uh, and usually, you'd have a sidearm as well, uh, a pistol. Now, again, depending on contract, requirements or one thing or another uh you know the pistol that the person carried uh would would vary and you you saw a, a wide range of makers and brands out there um so it wasn't just the glock i mean whether it was the cz or the h and k or or smith and wesson i mean just go down the list i mean you you saw almost every uh manufacturer's brand out there um, especially when you're talking about the various nations, but on the American side, again, it, it just you would see, you would see the variety, and it just depended on the person's preference uh, and the contract requirements as to what you carried. I mean, there were some contracts I was on where the preference was the Beretta M9, and as I recollect. The only contract that I was on that required the Beretta M9 was my first contract. After that, there were preferences, um, and that's what they would hand you. But you had the option of using a different one if you could get your hands on it um, or could acquire it. Uh, but for the most part, um, you saw a lot of Glock. But, there were, again, you, you saw the variety. It, it just depended. What other stuff we wore, of course, I've talked about that before, the plate carriers and... and uh, the, the very, you know, people have asked me, what's the best one? You know what? Yeah, I'm not sure there is a best one. There's a lot of good ones out there. Similarly, there's a lot of really bad ones out there in terms of design. Um, but, you know, again, like so many things, it's, it's shooter's preference. Okay, whatever works for them. But uh, when it comes to plate carriers, um, more often than not, guys would be, you know, wearing plates. Um some to a lot would also have that uh, Kevlar in there as well. Uh, not only is it secondary backup for those areas that don't, where the plates can't be mounted, but also for shock absorption. And people ask shock absorption, yeah. Um, I mean, they're, you know, they're, you got a high velocity round coming at you from, say, a PKM or 240 or you know, something along that line or, you know, a 7.62 round, even from an AK at close to moderate range, um, there's a lot of energy being imparted 
on that plate when it hits. So uh, Kevlar actually would help to absorb that impact and soften the blow, if you will. Not that it still isn't going to hurt. You're still going to feel it, but it's not going to be the same. And then helmets, yeah, there were, uh, again, it just depended on the project and where you were as to whether wearing plate carriers and helmets were required uh, when you're outside or if you were on duty. Um, it, again, it just a wide variety. It just depended on where you were and the timing and everything else. But helmets, yeah, uh, that was, I mean, we always had that stuff issued to us. Um, my, you know, I tended to not wear helmets as much as I could. Uh, and when I did, I preferred, you know, and there's all kinds of names, but, I, you know, I'd wear the half shell or the clam shell, whatever you want to call it. Um, it was, quote unquote, more comfortable for me. Um, I could hear better because my ears weren't covered up. And uh, it was easier to get on and off. And if I needed, and I usually didn't, but if I needed to have anything else um, mounted onto that helmet, um, it, it just fit better and easier. But uh, again, you know, on the, and the Kevlar level, uh, we saw everything from uh, 3 to 3 alpha, or 3A, if you will, all the way up to level 4. Um, and some of them called them standalone. But... Uh, Again, I mean, my preference was to not wear a helmet. Uh, call me old school. Call me crazy. Call me whatever you want. Um, but uh, the plate carrier, yeah, I almost always had that on if I had the choice. Now, there were times uh, where I didn't. It, uh, it just didn't. I just felt like, eh, I really don't need it. Um, I take my chances. <laughs> Again, it just depends on where you're working and what you're doing. And who the threat is and just how viable is that threat. So there's a lot of stuff that goes into that. You know, there's people out there, that's their sole designated purpose for being there is figuring all that stuff out and passing that information on. And then it's up to the boss or bosses to determine whether it's a requirement and if it is, at what point it becomes required. So with all that in mind and kind of more or less clarified, um, then, you know, so... Whether you're working day shift or night shift, um, and the typical workload was six on, one off. Uh, does that mean that sometimes you didn't have to work seven days? No, that's not what it means at all. It just means that that was the standard, six on, one off. You work six days, you get one off. So, you know, you get up and put on your Gucci footwear, uh, slip into your 511s or your proppers or whatever it is you're wearing. Uh, because there was a rare contract that specified you had to have 511 or something. It was usually because the company um, got something in return for that. But uh, so you put that on, you'd slip on whatever shirt, you know. Uh, most companies uh, didn't have a specific requirement um, in terms of what shirt you wore, whether it was long sleeve or short sleeve. As long as it fit within a color spectrum and they give you three to five different colors that you could wear um, and that you wore the company patch uh, somewhere on the on, on your sleeves and or on the breast pocket as well, which is what I did along with American flags. And, and again, depending on the contract and where you were, uh, we were even issued, uh, I forget the actual name of it, but it, for layman, in layman's terms, it was an infrared uh, uh, flag patch. 
that we would put on our caps and or helmets and somewhere on our shirts, sometimes <laughs> more than one place. Uh, and that was so that uh, primarily uh, people in the air that were flying around saw it and said, oh, yep, there are, they're, they're green, don't shoot. <laughs> Friendly, don't, don't shoot. <laughs> or, you know, at least at the very least, they got, you know, they would look two or three times. Uh, so, you know, you put that on, put on your Gucci eyewear, maybe put on your helmet. And, uh, you know, guys were starting to order their own helmets uh, because, let's face it, a lot of the stuff that we were issued um, from plate carriers to helmets really kind of sucked. So a lot of guys, not an uncommon thing at all at this point now, somewhere, you know, certainly by 2010. Uh, and, and even before then, I mean, uh for a long time, actually, guys were ordering their own stuff, uh, regardless of the brand. They and uh, so they would order their own stuff. They would pay whatever they paid for it, and because it fit better, <coughs> they could customize it better. They could put whatever they needed on there, uh, whatever they felt they had to have. So again, what's the best one, man? I mean, it. There, I don't think there is a best one. Uh, you know, I mean. <laughs> It just what works for you, and it comes down to being very practical and figuring out the environment you're working in as to what you need. Now, nothing wrong with having a plate carrier that has everything that you could ever possibly want or need to put on or in there, but oftentimes, or at least sometimes, but arguably oftentimes, you don't need all of that stuff. Okay, the guys that typically need all that stuff on there are guys that are going out on offensive missions so remember as private security contractors we're defensive mission okay doesn't mean that we're not um, adequately equipped and armed we are okay or we certainly could be if we wanted okay but a lot of this stuff you don't need now so what do you need well you obviously want a fac or an IFAC, okay, first aid kit, the I was individual, so the first aid kit was smaller, and you would see guys put it in various places, and, you know, I never really argue with anybody about that, it's like, whatever, shooter's preference again, but typically you would see it stowed on the back side, down at the lower end, and typically, not always, it would be Velcroed on. So that if you had to, it was an easy off thing or relatively easy. You just had to rip it off that great big Velcro patch. And we're talking, this is good industrial Velcro, folks. So when I talk about using Velcro in these environments, I'm talking, you know, industrial, industrial grade, commercial grade um, Velcro. Not this cheap stuff that we often find at the consumer level. Um, so, you know, you'd have that. You want to have a, a space, whether it's a pouch or a mounting, a clipping, whatever, for your radio. Uh, you want to have a spot for your uh, tourniquets, okay? And where you put them exactly, again, a lot of it just depended on how much real estate you had, how it was designed, that real estate was designed on that plate carrier, but you want to have a spot for that. Usually at least two, uh, or, well, at least one. Uh, a lot of us would, would find ways of putting two on there. Um, and some guys would have a third or fourth one in their IFAC or somewhere else. Um, no, you know, 
there is no no such thing as overkill when it comes to those sorts of things. Because if it's you or the guy to your left or your right or in front or behind, whatever, I'm just saying, the, you know, there's some things there's no overkill on. Same thing with your bandages and, and, and your wraps and your ointments that you need. Those sorts of things. Um, obviously, you'd want stowage space, compartments, pouches, whatever you want uh, for your magazines. And for your primary weapon, which is your rifle, whatever rifle you're sporting, uh, you, those magazines are almost always, if not always, stowed up front where you can easily get to them. So we're talking gross motor, motor skill stuff here, uh, but they're always aligned up front along your torso and uh, in an upright fashion. Uh, now, they're, I, I toured around, and I still like the idea, the concept behind uh, inversing that so that the magazines are facing down. But as I think I've discussed in previous episodes, the guys, you know, said, well, what happens if this, that, and, you know, you, and anyway, long story short, we talked it through and I thought, you know, that makes a lot of sense. So I went back to standing them upright. Uh, but I do turn them the opposite direction, which I've talked about before. Um, <coughs> obviously, you want stowage space for the magazines for your pistol. Okay. So there, there are things, you know, so we don't need uh, real estate or storage space for grenades uh flares arguably there were times where that kind of was a thing there were guys that would have a flare of sorts uh, and then uh the light sticks or the the chem sticks uh you know again you would you would find places to put you know and sometimes you could just put them in the, in the, the side pouch pockets of your trouser guys would find spaces for uh the knives or you know their stabbing implement <laughs> whatever you want to call it okay so i mean there were things that you would you know so we would have real estate space and and figure out ways to mount those sorts of things that you would either need or arguably you might need and it's good and or it's just good to have just in case because better to have it and not need it than need it and not have it right same thing with flashlights or uh, lighting implements. Uh, so a lot of us would have um, a handheld flashlight, not these big oversized flashlights that are often used in, in, in standard security. Um, and again, the brands varied as the years went on. There were more and more of them. Surefire obviously was a big one. It still kind of is. Uh, so we're talking a relatively small flashlight that had a really bright um light if you if you needed or wanted it uh and then we had the the uh, low level ones uh, i forget exactly what they're called but they kind of look like key fobs a lot of them and you get them various colors uh green and red and blue um to light up um you know a short range within wherever you were walking uh or where you happen to be operating so you could still see and find things but it was a lot more difficult for someone who might be looking down a scope to spot you. So uh, we, those things, we, we almost always had everything that I've just talked about. Again, it just depended on the project and where you were, the threat and the risks, and one thing or another. Then we had, uh, well, what we would kind of refer to as playtime, which was our instruction and training time. And it was almost always on us to do that. But usually somebody would go to the boss man 
and tell them this is what we want to do. And for the most part, most guys were, yeah, you know, the more the better. Um, and it helped to break up the monotony as well, but also kept you fresh. And we always learned, you always learn something. You should be learning something new out of every instruction and training evolution, especially if it's being done properly. Um, if not, you're probably not paying attention um, or you just don't care anymore. But uh, instruction and training, yeah, uh, especially there in the Jalalabad area, uh, yeah, we had, well, let's just say we had our fair share of it. And you could do more on your own. Uh, it's just a lot of it came down to sharing the ranges with the various entities that were out there because the ranges were in high demand. And the military, as you might expect, makes sense, had first dibs on all the ranges. But as long as you weren't, you know, dickheads and you were doing a good job and they liked what you were doing, um, you know, the work you're performing, and especially if they liked you or your unit, uh, they were quite amenable to uh, sharing the range. And uh, if they actually didn't need it, yeah, it's all yours. And we had a lot of really good instruction and training. It wasn't the only place, but... Uh, I remember that one fondly because we had a lot and it was it was a lot of fun. And then uh, fitness. Fitness was key. Fitness was huge. Uh, at least it should have been. Now, trust me, there in every project I was on uh, through all the years, there were always guys and probably gals, but guys that just didn't take their fitness, their exercise seriously. Um they would go there periodically, especially if they felt pressured to go there. Uh, but fitness, I mean, you're operating in environments and climates that require a certain level of not only mental sharpness and acuity, but physical fitness. And I don't just mean that you can pick up a 100-pound boulder and toss it 25 or 50 feet. But also stamina. You got to have it all. So there were guys that would do some form of exercise every day. Nothing wrong with that. Okay. Keeps you on your toes. Keeps you hard. Keeps you strong. Uh, but for the most part, every other day or some guys had, you know, where they go two or three days and they take two or three days off. Two or three days, take two or three days off. Uh, whatever their evolution was or however they did that. But fitness was a big thing. And... It should be a big thing, and it should be a big thing more so than it is here in the States. And anybody that's worked private security in the United States, especially after having worked private security outside the continental United States, really recognizes that. But fitness should be key. Not only are you hard, not only are you strong and firm, but you also have stamina because you got to be able to last you got to be able to last the duration of the fight. You don't know how long it's going to last. It might be 30 seconds. It might be three hours. Okay, so fitness is key. you got to be strong. you got to have stamina. you got to be able to last. If you can't last, everything else doesn't matter if you can't go the duration of the fight. With that said, uh, I think we'll put a wrap on this one. Um, I want to thank you. Everyone 
for taking time out of your day, afternoon, or evening to listen to me talk about private security contracting overseas, as well as some of my experiences as a private security contractor overseas and <laughs> sporadically occasionally here in the States. Uh, thank you to my wife, for whom I owe immeasurable gratitude. Thank you to my family, my friends, and all the people, male and female, who have been and still are a part of my life. And remember, folks, it takes a team. The grass is not always greener on the other side. Be careful what you wish for. You might just get it. Stay humble, stay safe, and keep others safe by staying frosty. And until next time, keep it real. Oconus the Contractor's Life extends a special thank you to music composer Kava Cohen and to Colin Perry of Ninja Tracks for allowing Oconus the Contractor's Life the use of Kava's song, Heavy Clutch, from the music soundtrack to the game Forza Motorsport 7. And also, a big thank you to Andres Rodriguez, who can be found at the Fiverr website for his excellent original music scores.